1: To get started,
0: visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hi everyone and welcome back to the Delicious Ella podcast with me, Ella Mills, and my husband, Matthew Mills.
2: Hi everyone.
1: So, today we're doing a little bit of a nutrition 101 and we're gonna kind of, I guess, go back to basics. I think there's a lot of questions we all have like, are all calories created equal? What even is a calorie? Should I be looking at calories? We hear good carbs and bad carbs good fat and bad fat there's salt there's sugar and it's basically this just massive minefield that I think we all kind of slightly struggle to navigate so we thought you know what today we're going to strip it right back and I asked our readers for questions and there was a really interesting answer that someone gave which I think is a really nice way to kind of frame where we're coming from with this so I said you know ask me all your questions about calories fat salt sugar etc and we're going to focus on those today and someone said Oh my God, I actually need to know everything. Diet culture has messed up my thoughts so much. I don't even know where to begin. And I think it's so true. There's a lot of really complex language in this space, like the good fat versus bad fat, good carbs versus bad carbs. And like how do we break that down and actually understand how to look after ourselves physically, but also mentally. So we've got the most brilliant guest here with us, Rhiannon Lambert, who we had on season two. Our first
2: ever repeat guest. Yeah.
1: Oh, wow, yeah. Oh, I'm so flattered. <laughs> <fascinated. laughs> So Rhiannon came on at the beginning of season two, which was the start of January, to basically do a kind of diet myths debunked. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that one yet, please do, because it's absolutely brilliant. And we love talking to her so much that we thought she is the perfect person for today. So I guess we want to start at the top. And, you know, obviously, like, when you go into any supermarket or you pick up any snack or you even read lots of menu boards now or just in the press, the media, you know, we, we hear the word calorie all the time. And I think it's actually incredibly confusing. Some people are very obsessed with counting calories. Other people feel like that's a really bad measure of things. But can we start literally at point one? What is a calorie?
0: <laughs> I think that's a really, really good question. And you're right. You see it absolutely everywhere. So a calorie is effectively a unit of energy. But this is a very scientific guesstimation tool, I would say. It's a rough estimate. And to create a calorie, it's how much energy does it take to heat one gram of water? Okay. So if you think about it, a thousand calories is a kilogram of water. That's how much it's taken to heat it. So that's all we're doing here is we're looking at how do you create energy in food? So it's how much energy you're eating every single day and for most people, they'd look at a calorie balance. So how much do you need to take in versus how much do you give out? But that's very difficult. And it's far too simplistic in my eyes, because I think calories have created a whole platform of confusion.
2: But I think that's why people like calories, because they look at an amount per day and they think that's good or bad. And they can see mm. either, either side of it in that way. And I think with diet, a lot of times people, it is so confusing. And I think it's one number that kind of comes to reference for people, even if it does seem like a bit of a weird and arbitrary way to measure food as good or bad, if there is such a thing. Well,
0: that's just it. I think perhaps it's disconnected us from knowing why we eat the foods Mm. we eat. Instead, we're going on a number system. And in fact, the body is a very complex biochemical system where... I mean, a calorie isn't just a calorie. It it can't be as simple as that. When we're looking at how things are absorbed in the body, and I think I'll I'll delve in by explaining to you guys and your listeners why this perhaps may not be the case. So a good example would be if you take something like sweet corn. This is a really good analogy because when you eat sweet corn, you pretty much see it the next day in your poop, just going to go there, say (laughs) that out loud. And let's say if you're eating 100 calories of sweet corn, you definitely haven't absorbed 100 calories because you can see it left over the day after. Whereas if you ground that corn down into flour, you are absorbing all of those calories because of the way your biochemical system absorbs it. So actually... We don't eat all the calories on the pack. It's not 100% accurate. And another example would be an almond or something that's very high in fibre. Let's say a pack of almonds, again, 100 calories. You actually only absorb 70 calories because of the amount of fibre that isn't broken down. And the casing around the almond means you don't absorb all the fat inside the almond either. So food is far more complex than just a simple number system.
1: So interesting. And then one question that was coming up time and time again, and I think kind of really leading on from what you're saying about the fact that calories are actually pretty arbitrary and potentially not necessarily incredibly helpful in terms of an indicator of something, is also are all calories created equal? Is an avocado and a Mars bar the same just because they've got roughly the same amount of calories or is that absolutely not true?
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely not true. And This is where I have a real problem with calorie counting. And in fact, it has a place. It's good to know a rough estimate. And like I said, let's use it as an estimation tool as to how much energy you take in versus take out. But there's also different thermogenics of food. Now, this is where it gets a little bit complicated. I'm going to try and break it down. So if you eat different types of food groups, so let's say fat, Maybe 2 to 3% of those calories you eat will be used as energy in itself just to break down fat. Whereas if you're eating protein rich foods, that's much higher at 25 to 30%, because that's how much it takes the body to break down different types of food groups. So if you take an avocado, versus a chocolate bar, like you said just Mm. then, they're both going to be broken down very differently. And you'll probably absorb all the calories in the chocolate bar because of the way the makeup of the chocolate bar is compared to the avocado, which would probably be richer in fibre as well. Mm -hmm. So you are looking at very big differences. And then, of course, there's different types of energy. So you've got fructose and glucose. That's fruit sugars versus sugars in carbohydrates. Now the sugars in fruit get digested by the liver. And then the sugars in glucose get digested by every cell in your body. So there's a very big difference there to where the food goes inside your body. Food doesn't just go to the same place and in every single one of us, because we're unique, it's completely different. So it's very difficult to calculate the amount that's perfect for everyone. And if if we go by the fact that the brain alone burns 300 calories just at rest, just doing its job every day, does anyone really think about that?
1: Mm. That's That's so interesting. And I guess you then also have the fact it, say like an avocado or you know almonds or whatever it mm. is so maybe a higher calorie food also then has all these really beneficial compounds within it that we need so again just looking at it on a calorie basis like I remember and I've noticed that a lot people being quite nervous you know obviously we are really celebratory of kind of whole foods and plant-based and we're not scared of fat calories mm. and all the rest of it we're like eat what tastes good and what's mm. good for your body and what feels good but a lot of that is you know kind of peanuts and peanut butter and almonds and avocados and things like this and And I've noticed a lot readers very nervous of this yeah. because of the calorie content but then as a result not looking at the fact that it then contains you know vitamin e mm. or as you said fiber or all these brilliant fats and you know as we know like you need that in your body for your brain function and, and etc cetera. Et cetera.
0: Yeah, something that I think may help your listeners is thinking about perhaps nutrients as well as numbers. Yeah. So uh, you want to think, how can I maximise the incredible food I'm eating every day to benefit me? It can be really daunting for lots of people. And of course, there will be people listening that will want to lose weight just as much as people that will not want to hear the word weight. We've got to cater for everyone and realise that for some people you do need to know how much energy, but it doesn't always mean it's 100% accurate. And I think a good example would be the government's campaign on 100 calorie snacks for children. Mm. Now this was really controversial when it came around because it was a guide for parents to obviously prevent the fact that one in 3 children are obese now. The child had obesity is on the rise and the government were like, "Oh, well if you all just look at the pack of the packs and you just stick to under 100 calories, but that straight away knocks a banana and nut butter out the window when you're mm. comparing it to a pack of crisps that's under 100 calories." Now I'm sure everyone listening would much rather their child have a more nutritious snack than a low calorie energy bar or something not very nutritiously Mm. valuable so do try and think of nutrients and a lot of the time the more energy dense foods are the whole foods the pulses and Mm. the fats especially fat fat is a very nutrient dense macronutrient so there's nine calories per gram in fat whereas in carbs you've got four calories per gram again in protein four calories per gram and you've got to look at that as, well, actually, fat isn't bad for me. Fat can be very, very good. We're all made of cholesterol, which is, again, another fear word that people fear is so much. But mm. actually, cholesterol is really important for us. So you're right. Think nutrients.
2: It feels like we need we need another scale for nutrients. You know, if we have a, a counter in, in, in calories as a unit of energy, we need mm. something. We need a, a yeah. unit monitor for, for, for nutrients. Oh, my too. goodness. I'd love <laughs> that.
0: Please say there's a scientist listening that wants to Contact yes, the government exactly. and create a nutrient scale. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. it's
1: so true. So I remember we were talking to someone once, a dietitian, and they were saying, you know, if you went around the supermarket and you were solely using the traffic light system to make your purchase decisions, then sugar-free green jelly would be the kind yeah. of quote-unquote healthiest thing you could get because it would be green on everything. Mm-hmm. But it's completely void of nutrition yeah. and it would probably fall into the ultra-process group, which, mm-hmm. as we've read in different studies, isn't that healthy for us. And so, again, whereas an almond or something like that, you know, banana mm. would flash up red because, mm. you know, the banana has sugar, the almonds yeah. have fat, etc. Yeah. And it's it's fascinating when you start looking at it like that. Oh, it this. really is.
0: And I think to put foods into the traffic light system now, you know, it hasn't done what it's been set out to do you know we're still not getting five a day we're now aware that gut health which i know you guys have discussed Mm -hmm. on this podcast before as well and we've touched on is incredibly important and the more nutrient dense foods with higher calorie content often support gut health too Mm.
1: we've talked about fat quite a lot in this section so i feel like fat should be our next area that we digress into um, I guess fat's another word that we're quite scared of. It has really negative connotations, both in the way that's almost used as an insult on a kind of personal level. Yeah. And then you've got the good fat, bad fat. You've had like all your Atkins diets and Duke and diets and kind of ketogenic diets that where fats kind of play is quite a big role. So I think it's become quite complicated in the kind of diet culture space, but also just about, I think it's become quite confusing for, mm. for everybody to digest. So kind of stripping it right back, How does it affect the body? Why do we need it? And then also, could you? Why do we
2: not need it as well?
1: <laughs> mm, yeah and, well. and also what's like you know trans fats versus
0: saturated fats versus unsaturated fats
2: yeah yeah or why, yeah and why shouldn't we have lots of fat
0: okay right let's again start at the beginning so for everyone listening fat is another form of energy in the body now it's also a good carrier of certain vitamins and minerals your fat solubles a d e and k and it can provide cushioning for your organs and it's also part of the building blocks of your hormones so fat can play a crucial role so a lot of your brain around 60% is made of fat. So this is where we know we need it. But yet we've come to fear it. And that's simply because of the fact that the balance of our diets, perhaps we haven't still got quite right, we know we're not eating enough of the vegetables and the fruit, and we're still getting a little bit too much, let's say, refined sugars and a bit too much saturated fat potentially, which is when I'm going to break it down for you guys. So the different types of fat. So let's start with saturated fat, which is linked to a raised blood cholesterol. And the NHS says that you shouldn't really have more than 11% of your overall daily intake as saturated fat. So you find saturated fat mainly in animal produce. Uh, predominantly things like dairy, meat, and you know items like bacon, sausages. Mm-hmm. That's where you find a lot of it. But also in coconut, which is why we have to also be very careful of portion sizes, even of things that are considered sometimes good foods. Then you've got your monounsaturated fatty acids. And this is where it gets a little bit confusing. And your polyunsaturated fatty acids. So first of all, the key is in the word unsaturated. So you've got saturated, which you don't want too much of, a bit harder to break down because the actual bond is completely saturated inside the body. It's very hard to break it down. But then you've got unsaturated, which is lots of different structures, which is more easy to pick away at inside the body.
1: So now would those constitute, again, quote unquote, the good fats? Yeah. OK, because when people talk, so when you read good fats in the media, yeah. this is what people are referring to. Yeah. It's the mono and poly unsaturated fats. Yeah,
0: and try to remember, mono means one poly means lots, lots of things. So an avocado is a good example of a monounsaturated fatty acid. And you guys don't even need to remember the name monounsaturated. Just remember you wanna eat more nuts, seeds, (laughs) avocados, all those types of things. And then your polyunsaturated fatty acids. Now this is when we're talking about those omega-3s. And this is amazing because the body can't actually make enough of these. And you can of course find these types of polyunsaturated fatty acids in things like oily fish, some eggs, milk, yogurts, but they're broken down into different parts. So you've got ALA, which is the vegetarian type of omega-3 yogurt, alpha-linoic acid. You've got EPA and DHA. Now, DHA is the important part that helps the brain. DHA is the really, really crucial part that can help protect your brain against neurodegenerative disorders. Also, those long-chain fatty acids combined, EPA and DHA, they make up omega-3 singly. And they help your heart. So they help your heart function and stay healthy for longer. And there's now a lot of research that actually links an intake of having these omega-3s to um, reduced risk of things like Alzheimer's and dementia and heart attacks. And not enough people are getting their oily fish or their plant-based alternatives in their diet. So that's a healthy fat you definitely want to get. Nice. Brilliant. So cholesterol is a fat that's basically vital for the body. It's important to know that it's made by the liver. It's found in some foods as well. And it's actually carried around the blood in the blood by a protein. And we call these lipoproteins. So the word lipo comes from the word lipid, which means fat. So just remember fat lipid lipo okay (laughs) of obviously there's liposuction which i think most people probably (laughs) (laughs) get that kind of association from but these lipoproteins come in two different categories and this is where your blood cholesterol tests if anyone listening has been to the gp and you've looked at your blood cholesterol breakdown this is where it gets important so you've got your high density lipoproteins which carry protein around which you want a lot of and your low-density lipoproteins, which you don't want as much of those. The reason being that HDL carries things to the liver to be metabolized, which is good. LDL carries it to the cells. And if there's too much of this in your blood, it will also start to accumulate in your artery walls And that's where you start to potentially get an increased risk of cardiovascular diseases. Some people notice symptoms, maybe they have symptoms like angina when they've got blocked up arteries, chest pain. These are the things we need to be very careful of. So you want more of the kind of good fats that increase the ratio of HDL and less of the LDL, which comes from the saturated fats. So those are the kind of breakdown of you've got saturated fats, you've got cholesterol, which comes in two forms. You've got your HDL and your LDL transporters, and that's what helps work cholesterol inside the body. Then we move on to trans fats. Are you with me so far? And
1: now trans fats are the ones that when, again, you read in the kind of media, they are the quote unquote bad fats mm-hmm. that have the kind of bad rep is that correct
0: yeah um and you find low levels of this in meat you can find it in dairy produce but in a lot of vegetable oils as well that have been hardened in fact predominantly guys it's an ultra processed foods in fact today it's actually better i think a lot of supermarkets make a point now of not including trans fats or they make an effort to cut these down there was a time where they were rife in ready meals, but <laughs> this this was a good maybe five ten years ago and i think okay. we're much better now now, yeah. At looking at those types of things. I wouldn't worry too much about trans fats anymore. It's definitely going over on your saturated fat. If you're a, a classic, um, Animal produce eater, and it's the wrong ratio. Let's say of the different types of fats, like the bacon and the sausages. You may want to go go easy on those. Okay, okay, but
1: then not to then to feel kind of completely brilliant about having lots of nuts and seeds and olive oils and things like that.
0: They're the things, and this is when we come back to calories in a way because they're the items that contain tons of energy, but they're really good for you. Yeah. And it's just getting the portion control right because you can have too much of a good thing, but it doesn't mean you don't include them in your diet. And this. Is where if you have a calorie target of let's say someone set you 1,500 calories a day, but you really fancy a portion of nuts and you haven't had any healthy fats that day, well I'd still rather someone eat those nuts yeah. than worry about those extra 50 or 100 calories that's going to go over yeah. their target for the day. Yeah
1: It's brilliant hearing that because I think there is a lot of fear around fat and I think it's brilliant understanding that actually as you said like it's important for our hormones, our brain function, mm. actually all these really, really key things So we want to be working brilliantly within our body. There's a lot at the moment in the media about a ketogenic diet which is very very high in fat. But then equally you've had a lot of very very low fat diets. And I would just be really interested and I know again it was a question we had from quite a lot of readers because it's quite a buzzword at the moment mm. like we were in the US at a um, big trade show out there at the end of last year and like literally every single product <gasps> was ketogenic. Really? Yeah, everything was. There's it?
2: even something that I mean when Mum first got ill, that people were recommending to her as a good diet as something that can that can help tackle cancer as well, so I mean it's like it's it's this kind of mad buzzword, yeah, but particularly in the u s
0: so it'd be interesting just to get your thoughts. It's important, first of all, to state that the only research we have supports people with epilepsy for the use of ketogenic diets effectively. So it's not something that the general public should be really advised to do, especially anybody suffering with conditions like cancer. It can be very risky because you can become devoid in lots of key vitamins and minerals Mm. and fibre. That being said, if anybody is out there who isn't very well, I would really advise you to seek a registered dietitian or nutritionist before following any trends that you hear. But a ketogenic diet is when you keep carbohydrates below 50 grams throughout the entire day. Now give us an example of <laughs> 50 <laughs> you grams. Um, off the top of my head, that would probably allow your bowl of berries, maybe a few sticks of broccoli and maybe a tiny, tiny portion of rice. Like, okay. I mean, minuscule, maybe like one spoon. Okay. And that, that really is off the top of my head. I'm sure you could have maybe another handful of vegetables instead, but it's not a lot and it's nowhere near your five a day. Technically, your five a day is 80 grams of a fruit or vegetable. Yeah. So you're not even reaching that. Okay, because fruit or vegetables are actually mostly carbohydrates. Yeah. Keeping your carbs very low, first of all, is going to feel intense for your body. Your brain survives and thrives off glucose. Without it... You're gonna feel headachey, fluey, tired, lethargic, um, inability to concentrate thoroughly. And this is what people describe as keto flu when some when people make these drastic changes and then they go out the other side and they claim to feel euphoric. This can be explained by the fact that, first of all, you might notice drastic weight loss as well, because you're losing water. Carbohydrates attract water molecules, so when you're suddenly not eating carbohydrates, you will feel leaner, you will feel slimmer, and you may notice a big dip on the scales if you are someone who weighs yourself. That doesn't mean you've lost any body fat. It's simply your cells letting go of energy and water and stored nutrition which which isn't great as to
1: right, so that doesn't sound like a particularly good thing to me
0: no you'll be going to the toilet a lot more and people that do embark upon these diets have they take a, a dipstick to measure their urine to see if they've reached something called ketosis so the body is very very clever When you don't get enough glucose, it can create something called ketones, which can also act as a source of energy for the body. But it's not your body's preferred source of fuel. So ketones actually can create really awful side effects, um, bad breath being the most commonly noted one. But for some people, it can severely, severely damage their body because it's not used to or meant to function in this way. And long-term use of ketogenic diets, we don't have enough data on yet, but we know that digestion is severely affected. So the gut microbiome, of course, if your bacteria in the gut suddenly isn't being fed any prebiotic foods or things that it likes to eat, and it's just being fed. Essentially, your diet is just animal produce on a Mm -hmm. keto diet Mm -hmm. or a very, very well-planned vegetarian diet, but it's very difficult to do as a vegan or vegetarian. Mm -hmm. You, You pretty much just eat meat all day which I I don't advocate for anyone listening
1: yeah well every single episode we've done basically the key take home is a balanced varied diet Mm -hmm. is the best thing you could possibly have for your well-being whether that's for your gut your brain you know your energy levels your skin health etc etc and so when you start looking at this and you're literally stripping everything but that one spoonful of rice, I know it doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, the
0: argument is that meat contains a lot of vitamins and minerals that are essential as well. So it can contain some omega-3s, it can contain um, iron, it contains zinc, it it can contain a lot of nutrition, but not nearly enough that we know, having researched as evidence-based nutrition, that you get from fruit and vegetables.
1: It is nuts. So I think with carbohydrates... it's a kind of perfect moment to bring up another kind of food group that again has had this like crazy demonization of mm-hmm. people being so scared of carbohydrate. And like the number of times I've heard people saying like, I'm going to quit carbs. And I'm like, so you're never going to eat broccoli again. People oh. are like, wait, what? And, like, because you don't like, I think there's this association of what a carbohydrate is mm. instead of the fact that actually as we were saying like fruit and vegetables are all made out so much of carbohydrates. Yep. And there's so many important things in there like fiber and people have this just a massive, 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 massive fear of this group. And again, it's where this really, I think, like quite toxic terminology is used where you
0: have good carbs and bad carbs. Mm -hmm. So... (laughs) What's going on? Okay, well, 50% of our diets we're advised by the NHS should be made of carbohydrates. And as Ella's quite rightly said, and I saw Matt nodding along, is that basically that does contain fruit and vegetables Mm. too. It is not just pizza and pizza. Yeah,
1: It's not 50% pizza. (laughs) No.
0: I think looking at the quality and the quantity of the diet is very, very important here. And there is no one size fits all. So even as we're recording this podcast everyone's when I say 50% that's an NHS recommended amount for some people that number may be lower for others it may be higher it's important to note our individual differences and requirements Um, because a lot of carbohydrate based foods if we're looking at starchy foods can contain a lot of energy as well and where we've gone wrong and the reason they're demonized I think is that we've gone too far down the poor quality carbohydrates in our diets and I'm talking more refined carbs. Like They have a place, but not every single day. Pastries, yeah. biscuits and lovely, tasty, delicious <laughs> processed foods that everybody enjoys, that I enjoy as a nutritionist. But we definitely have taken them to extreme and we're not getting the whole grains anymore. The whole grain brown rices, the nice Bulgur wheat, quinoa, pearl barley, sweet potatoes, normal potatoes, those standard nice grains and starchy vegetables seem to have been pushed aside for convenience foods. That's where carbs have technically got a bad name, but also because you store water. So if you eat a carbohydrate-based meal and you step on the scales, you will weigh more. It's not that you've put on weight. Mm-hmm. It's the water with the carbs that you need to even break it down.
1: So interesting. So just to understand what you're saying there, so... If we're thinking about kind of, yeah, potatoes and pearl barley and rye and all these more complex carbohydrates, why are those better for us to be focusing on for that 50% as opposed to the more refined carbohydrates?
0: Okay, so this brings us into a topic I know that you're quite keen to discuss of glycemic index as well. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, So GI foods or glycemic index foods is basically the speed at which it takes a food to raise your blood sugar levels. Now, this isn't a bulletproof way to identify if a food is going to be healthy or not. And I'll break down the reasons in a bit as to why not. But some good examples of high GI foods are what we've just discussed, which create a rapid increase in blood glucose levels. Those are white bread, potatoes that are hot, not cold. Because when they're cold, they have more resistant starch, which slows down the release of the sugar, which I'll explain in a bit. But hot potatoes go very fast into the system. I think that's quite an interesting Interesting. one. That That is is fascinating. Yeah. And of course, sugary drinks, uh, the standard, I think we all know a bit of chocolate occasionally can be high GI. But then the low medium kind of foods that you want to focus on are like Ella said, you know, fruit, veg, pulses, whole grains. But it is misleading sometimes the speed in which things affect your blood sugar levels. The classic examples I've got are a watermelon and parsnips are considered high GI foods because they release into your blood system very, very quickly. And actually, they're very healthy foods. So just because a food is a high GI food doesn't mean it's unhealthy a lot of the time. Yeah, But we do want more of those complex carbs because of the fiber they contain. And is that why they release slower yes. into your blood? 100%. They release slowly into the bloodstream. They also keep us fuller for longer, and they like our gut bacteria. So the gut bacteria likes these kind of fibre-rich foods, and that's obviously now linked to maintaining a healthy weight, a healthy cardiovascular system, uh, looking at links to the gut-brain axis with the brain, and things like dementia. So there's actually a full 360-degree circle when it comes to glycemic index food. But the reason GI isn't as accurate led to the discovery of creating a glycemic load. So you've got something called GL. And that does look at the quantity and quality of the food. And that measures the amount of time, like how long the blood sugar stays high for, just as much as how quickly it goes in. So that's a slightly better measure for people looking at the GL But to be honest with you, for anyone listening, you don't really need to worry too much. And if you think about a cake, I think a cake is a really good example. We all love cake, Mm -hmm. but cake contains a bit of fat. It contains a lot of sugar, but the amount of fat in the cake slows the release of the sugar. So a chocolate cake sometimes can have a lower GI than a carrot, simply because it's got fat in it. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's healthier, a GI system.
1: Now, does that come back to... I guess, how boring is this? A balanced play. Yeah. Um, but again, about showing that why we need to have all these foods together mm-hmm. and why actually when you're thinking about your lunch or your breakfast or your dinner or your snack, or whatever it is, it's a good idea to think about having fats, carbs, protein all together because they all support each other about when they go into your body.
0: Yeah, I mean, for most people, a balanced plate is probably the best bet in terms of getting all the nutrients you need and affecting your blood sugar levels in a safe manner. It's only if you're diabetic and you need to be aware of how foods affect your blood sugar levels that you should really be even more aware of these GI systems but yeah the balance plate carbs proteins a bit of healthy fat and a good portion of protein and you can't really go wrong because that will slow the release of any Mm -hmm. rapid sugar and it's important to be aware as well that fruit isn't something that should be feared here as well so fruit may be sugar but it's fructose and like I said earlier it goes to the liver to be metabolized it's a very different pathway to items like potatoes and bread and pasta so that there's another myth that sugar's bad. I think we touched on that before.
1: <laughs> now, sugar was the topic that we had the most readers' questions
0: really? on. Really?
2: So, can you give us the sugar basics?
0: So sugar, again, is something that I don't think we should be completely fearful of in our diets. It's actually been around for years and years. If if you look back, we actually used to intake more sugar in the industrial kind of revolution, Victorian times, than we do now. Really? Yeah, people would have up to maybe six teaspoons of sugar in their tea a day. And we didn't take it in different ways. However, that we didn't have what came with the sugar, which is the processed foods that you find it within So it's how our overall diets have changed. But that in itself has led to a problem because we're having more what I call free sugars without realising it. So the government are now classifying labels on sugar as a difference between what is free. And when I say free, I mean added sugars. So looking at things like sucrose, looking at honey, syrups and fruit juice instead of eating the actual fruit itself because you're having a big concentrated source. And you're not having the fibre. Exactly. And in fact, a portion of fruit juice a day is 150 mils, one of those. And that's not very much. Mm.
1: 150 mils is not a portion. (laughs) (laughs) If you actually weighed that out, an adult is not having 150 mils. Oh, yeah, no,
0: definitely. They're probably easily having 350 a pot, which, which is a problem in itself because of the speed those sugars do hit your bloodstream. And straight away, we're looking at different measures. So for most people out there at home, it's important to be aware that free sugars should apparently be no more than 5% of your overall diet. That's not very much at all. And if you think about it, it's probably in your ketchup. If you look at your tins in your cupboard, it might be in baked beans. Lots of things you're eating, even veggie sausages, some have sugar added, pastries. You just... Look everywhere. Look at the labels. I'm sure you will you know, see it. It was
1: so interesting when we were developing our products. So like with our frozen meals, for mm. example, is we were really passionate about the fact that we didn't want to just, obviously for us as a, as a business, like our focus is on natural yeah. and trying to keep everything really, really simple. Now in one or two of them, we've used a, kind of a splash of maple, or something like that, because it's been important for balancing mm. out the flavours. But it, it was so interesting because we couldn't, for example, find a stock cube that didn't have sugar so yeah. we didn't we haven't used a stock cube in the end yeah. but there was so many ingredients out there mm. and like trying to source tin tomatoes effectively sort of chopped tomatoes that don't have sugar added I was I
0: mean it took us months
1: and months and months doesn't yeah. it didn't it yeah it was it was a big challenge
0: it's an incredible transition even hearing the process of how food manufacturers now have to reformulate their products so you're starting a product which I think is actually the better way around now <laughs> without actually mm. hitting those going over on the sugar targets you're very conscious of it a lot of people now have to bring their products back to the factories, strip them down and reformulate them. I mean, sugar is the same. Maple syrup is still sugar, as is honey, which people should be aware of. But to give you a rough amount and a guide, so a four to six-year-old should apparently be having 19 grams maximum a day. That's five sugar cubes. And it goes... But now that is not including fruit. No, that is extra, additional free sugars. They can still eat fruit. But of course, I actually think that's quite high. Yeah, It seems high. Yeah. And then if you go to the age of 11, it will be 30 grams maximum, which is seven cubes. Okay. So it is, it is still quite high. And a high amount is, is considered more than 22.5 grams of sugar per 100 grams in a pack. Yeah. Which is high. If you think we've just said for an 11-year-old the whole day should be no more than 30 grams and per 100-gram an serving, some people may be getting that in one serving of food. And low is less than 5 grams per 100 grams. Mm. So really have a look at your packs at home. Like, if we could all challenge you to something, perhaps pull something out the cupboard, look per 100 grams on the back of the pack, see how many sugars there are. Perhaps there are more than five grams and already you're going into the low medium. Yeah.
2: Of free sugars. Of
0: added sugars, yeah. Of added free sugars, sugars, yeah.
1: Because yeah. mm, that's always that the too. challenge, again, because, mm. like, when we we're making our breakfast cereal, so, for example, our birch and muesli, our fruit and nut muesli, there's absolutely no sweetener at all in there, but we do have raisins and apple mm. and raspberry. Yeah. And so technically... It's not green and sugar yeah. because it includes raisins, includes exactly. a fruit. So, yeah. it's again, it's being aware of where the sugars are coming from yeah. as well because I think we found that whole process really, really interesting as well. Oh, I was it's like, fascinating. But it's apple, you know. Yeah.
0: Mm. But it sh- this is just it. People, we should be encouraging people to enjoy the natural sugars that you get in your food. It's just limiting the amount of extras. And we all love chocolate and we all love muffins and cakes and things but we just have to have things in moderation we're not saying never have them it's just sometimes we're having excess and they're hidden do you know one of my biggest beliefs as well is that
1: i don't think we enjoy them enough either yeah. i think it's been really interesting and i think again a lot of it comes from this kind of kind of quite complicated relationship that a lot of people have with food and kind of the, you know growing up where there's a lot of media conversation around diets and dieting and calorie counting and weight and etc cetera, etc cetera, and that becoming such a big part of everyone's lives and you know I always say to people, it's my worst question, but I get it in every interview. It's like, what's your guilty pleasure? I'm like, that's an oxymoron. You can't have a pleasure. If it makes you feel guilty, it Mm -hmm. literally doesn't make Mm -hmm. sense. It then wouldn't be a pleasure, would it? And I think that's why we're going wrong, is instead of every now and again you know once a week twice a week or whatever it is sitting down maybe you bake a lovely cake for your yeah. family and on saturday afternoon you sit down you have a piece of chocolate yep. cake together and you just yep. really enjoy it and it's a lovely or you meet up with a girlfriend who you haven't seen in a while and you have a you know glass of wine and a pudding mm. or you meet for a coffee and a cake or whatever it is yeah and you you go somewhere where you love that cake or you bake something you really want and you really enjoy it and you savor every mouthful, and you're like this is so delicious and it completely feeds your soul as well and gives you that sense of balance mm. we're like oh it's so naughty it's so naughty and you kind of almost like inhale it without appreciating it because you're like oh I shouldn't be having this because you've got this complex feeling about it and then I feel like as a result we don't even eat things we enjoy you just eat what's there and you don't have appreciation of it because you've got these negative connotations so I feel like it is as you said it's focusing on all these brilliant things that we need but then also finding that sense of balance in your life where you feed your soul as well but enjoy that don't Bring that negativity and kind of complexity
0: in with it yeah it's 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 difficult for people. it's very psychological food, it's related mm. to emotions, it's very emotive, and it can do with childhood and and pathways throughout life what we experience with the food. yeah it's very difficult to just snap our fingers and snap out of it, but Ella's right we we need to look at that aspect of it just as much as the education underneath it.
2: So why do people get afternoon sugar cravings then?
0: Well I think everybody when we say sugar cravings I tend to call it the afternoon slump so we, we may feel tired and therefore we want sugar because we want to pick me up or it's an association with that point in the day where a lot of people are oh I just want it to be bedtime now <laughs> <laughs> I need something positive and a lot of the time it's sugar. Um, scientifically speaking going down to a biochemical thing your blood sugar levels may be a little bit low that time of afternoon depending on what you've had for lunch how good was the quality of your lunch as well to keep your blood sugar level steady rather than spiking
2: but if you've had a really balanced great lunch mm. would you still expect to get that kind of drop mid-afternoon or it no? can
0: be so many things as well that drop in those sugar cravings may not be blood sugar balance for some people i think a lot of people it is but for others it could be fatigue or the fact they're dehydrated as well you haven't had a good night's sleep your cortisol levels also naturally decline throughout the day to get you ready for sleeping in the evening that's your stress hormone so you do kind of get a, a sharp kind of drop at that time in the day that's way more noticeable than obviously mid-morning afternoon you're just you're getting ready to end the day Mm. so instead of going for sugar my my advice would be think of food as energy again and go for maybe a piece of fruit that tastes just as good and does give you a good bout of energy that's not going to be a sharp spike in blood sugar levels or a
1: coffee (laughs) okay the last kind of group that we've got to talk about is salt Yes. Because I think salt's another thing that's had a lot of confusion. And there's been a, I think, especially, I think when we were growing up, there was a lot of negative conversation around salt and a fear of salt. And I
0: guess, why has salt got such a bad rap? So with salts, we're really looking at the fact that a lot of people used to have way too much salt. It used to be a classic on your grandparents' table where you'd have a salt shaker and I think you'd see them putting it on everything or that generation. And and we only really need to be getting around six grams of salt a day. Now, salt is something that really does impact our blood pressure. So a lot of people that are having too much, it then affects your kidneys, how much water is retained, also looking at the impact on blood pressure. And you can can actually increase that drastically. And it's not great for cardiovascular health especially alongside other conditions in the diet, perhaps carrying a little bit too much weight around the abdominal area and then you're having too much salt in your diet as well. But it's also important to differentiate between things like sodium and salt as well and the quality of the salt that we have. So each one gram of sodium equates to 2.5 grams of salt. So it's how it's written down on labels, and most people in the UK write salt, but in some places and in other countries, actually, it's written as sodium. So it's important to be aware that that is salt. That that is salt as well, but sodium is kind of you're getting double the amount. Yeah. So you want to be having less. It's about three grams of sodium and six grams of salt a day.
1: If you're home cooking and you're making things mostly from scratch, is there a genuine danger with salt, or is it more that it's added to a lot of processed foods and so it's very easy to suddenly eat a lot without having kind of totally realised
0: yeah I think um, it's very easy to have more than you think especially if you are having processed foods out and about and on the go Mm. I don't think anyone really looks at how much salt is in Mm. their food anymore Mm. and there is a target actually to reduce that level I spoke about earlier to 3 grams of salt not 6 by 2025 so we're still looking at, at reducing it further in terms of the government and the health campaign they have but if you're cooking from scratch that's probably the best way don't be scared of adding salt I see two sides in my clinic I see a lot of people coming to me that don't have enough because they're so terrified of mm. adding salt to their diet they actually have low blood pressure because they're not having a little bit of salt and, and then salt really side. helps with flavour
1: as yes. well and oh, I think oh it's so
0: good you know food's got to taste good A mm, 100% But it also helps the cooking process so the salt mm. breaks down the cellular wall of the of the vegetables as well which helps you cook it at a quicker rate which is always useful <laughs> <laughs>
1: so Rhiannon after all that incredible information if our listeners are going to take home five kind of key points from today's session what are your five?
0: First one would be carbs fuel your brain they're good for you and they also create happy hormones the carbs are very good for you so don't fear them the second one would be if anyone is preaching my way or the highway they're probably not the best person to go to for advice so as we discussed with the keto diets and things like that everyone is unique and um, the third would be Take nuggets from everything you hear. So use the advice that we've given you today, but realize that you don't have to worry to extreme amounts how much sugar and salt you do have in your diet. Just understand and try and take home what it's actually giving you. The next one would be nutrients, not numbers. As we discussed earlier, if Matt can create that nutrient scale or let's (laughs) get that out there, I think that would encourage a lot of positive relationships with food as well to move away from the numbers. And the final one, I think, would be to see food as a positive aspect of life, enjoyment. Think of the sociable sides. And if you are struggling, just go back to that balanced plate.
1: Brilliant. Thank you, Rhiannon, so much for coming to share so much unbelievable wisdom. I think Nutrition 101 is something that we all need every now and again, even just as a refresher. So if anyone has enjoyed this, then please do share it with some friends. Hopefully it will be helpful for other people and um, if you can rate it and review it we would so appreciate that and we will be back next week Um, next week we're talking about something completely different actually we're talking about kind of using yoga as a tool for internal transformation and the power of practices like meditation and the kind of ancient philosophies around it for creating a bit more calm a bit more balance in your life